Hello, dear listeners. It is me, your faithful host, your most faithful host, I would say. It's just going to be me and a wonderful guest on the show today because we're talking about a subject that Michael does not know or care about, which will mostly be the X-Men, which is fine morally and ethically, but incorrect aesthetically for them. So without further ado, with me on the show today is Abraham Reisman. Abraham Reisman is a journalist and author of True Believer, The Rise and Fall of Stan Lee. He writes primarily for New York Magazine and Vulture, but his work has also appeared in The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, The New Republic, The Boston Globe, and elsewhere. A very mysterious end to your bio. Abraham, how are you? Hi, how are you, even? Hi, well, hi, how are you? <laughs> um, I'm doing great. I have to tell you, I was very excited about doing this podcast. I released the book that you mentioned uh, in February, and I completely burned out on podcast interviews. I was really done with them, and then the opportunity to do this came up, and I was like, hand-rested and ready. It had been a few months great. since I've had to do anything. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I'm glad to get the fresh version of you. Yeah, I mean, I get it. I have become less of a podcast person through making this show because we record like three or four times a week. Oh, God, three or four times a week. Oh, my God. Well, we make a lot of episodes. We make two episodes a week. At that is extremely committed. Well done. Take a note, listeners. We're very committed. Okay, you heard it here first. You're not going to go full Daf Yomi at some point. Do it. Do it every day. No. Hell no. That is not. <laughs> That's not in the cards. Hell no. So you did this big, dare I say, famous book about Stanley, uh, who, for those of you who don't know, is a big macher. Was a big macher at Marvel Comics, and mm. I invite you on the podcast because we both live in the same city. We do. I didn't know if I was allowed to say that. No, it's okay. We speak in vagaries, but people know I live in Providence. So. Okay, yes. We met in Providence, and I was instantly like, oh, this is somebody I want to be friends with. We've only met the once. Like We've exchanged communication since then, but we've only met in person the once. And it wasn't even a one-on-one. -on -one. Like It was at a group. Like we were doing this thing for Tisha B'Av, and as soon as we started talking afterward, and you brought up comics, and I, I was like, okay, that, that's not always the signal, because a lot of people <laughs> like comics, and sometimes terrible people like comics, Right. but you add in just your general vibe, and I was like, okay, I've got a good feeling about this. My vibe is my living, I have to say. You know what? The older I get, and the stoneder I get, because I've like completely given in to medical marijuana now at this point- the more I feel like all decision-making at this point, I'm not saying this has been true throughout human history, but right now, so much decision-making is just vibes. Right. You know? Well, some might say the entire universe is just composed of vibes, of vibes instead of vibrations. Matter. Yes, it's true. Yeah. Anyway, so we're going to talk about X-Men, and that obviously is going to take up the majority of our time. But this is also a Talmud podcast. So first, I have to ask, what is your relationship to Talmud thus far? My relationship to Talmud is I've read half of the Stein Saltz book, uh, The Essential Talmud. Mm -hmm. uh, I've heard and read a lot more about Talmud than I have retained, although I have read a lot about Mishnah and Gemara. When it comes to specific stories, you know, the narrative portions of the Mishnah and the Gemara, that stuff pops up in other reading, you know, and I read voraciously about Jewish stuff, Jewish topics. I'm sure some of the more from people who, uh, in my life who wish I would be more from would say, you know, I haven't really read in the Jewish world until I've read Talmud, but still, you know, <laughs> um, I do read a lot in the Jewish realm. I also have to also confess up top, I have horrible ADHD. So, Great. um, reading is never like a, an actually like fun thing for me. Mm -hmm. And if I 
don't have to read through the legalities in like Barahot 64B or whatever. It's not my pleasure reading. See, that's the weird thing about me is I actually really love the boring stuff. But due to the exigencies of how media is created, I have to spend more time talking about the exciting stuff. The exciting stuff. No, I get you're you're a misnagid, maybe. You know, you you like I, you like- I you know, it's I'm a I'm a chassid trapped in the brain neurochemistry of a midnag so you're trans judaic uh in every on every possible like axis transing in every possible way you are trans judaic <laughs> that's great i just came up with that word but you're the one who defined it so i'm giving you the credit for it it's a great idea very generous of you so part of the reason i invited you to talk about x-men specifically even though there's a whole world of comics out there is because one of my contentions that x-men is a the most jewish and b the most talmudic at least of marvel comics a hundred percent and this comic is square one for the uh, exhibit a i should say for that which we'll talk about in a moment but like yes x-men has the single most convoluted story I think that's ever been told outside of <laughs> the Bible and right. other and other scriptural texts. Like the only thing that gets as complicated as the X-Men mythos is like the mythos of David HaMelech. You know, if you include <laughs> all of the Agadah and right. all of the whatever, you know, it's like none of that could have happened in all that span of time. But there's so much intricacy. I'll just introduce like one concept, because I'm sure not all of our readers are as familiar with X-Men as we are, is one of the reasons it's the most Jewish, I would say, is because one of the central central ethical centers of the whole series is Magneto, aka Eric Lyncher, who is defined by his Jewishness, and we could even argue by his Judaism, which yeah. is tied to his being a mutant. For those of you who don't know, Magneto is a character in the X-Men who is incredibly powerful, has power over magnetism of all kinds and one of his defining experiences is that he is a survivor of the holocaust and that colors all of his attitudes about mutantdom and like about what the effective use of power is so the whole at least one half of the ethical universe of the x-men is completely defined essentially by the holocaust and so the book x-men is sort of inextricably jewish for that reason alone, aside from all the Talmudic stuff that we're going to get into. Completely agree. Well, not on top of that, and this is what I uncovered when I... So a few years ago, when X-Men Dark Phoenix, you should pardon me mentioning the name, mm-hmm. uh, came out, I was like, I have to write... This is when I was still writing for Vulture all the time, and I was like, I have to write something about this, but I cannot... This movie is going to be execrable. Right. Oh, my God. It was so bad. So I just used it as the loosest template, jumping off point. I was like, let me write an essay... Not an essay, a, a reported piece... Uh, Let me write a feature where I write the story of how Magneto became canonically Jewish. Mm -hmm. Because what everyone doesn't think about, for some reason, is when he debuts in 1963 in X-Men number one, Magneto is not explicitly Jewish. In fact, there's nothing to even suggest he's vaguely Jewish. If anything, he seems like he's the kind of guy who would have been with the Nazis. He's like, Mm -hmm. you know, this highbrow European guy who, like, at one point, like, you know, sets up a little dictatorial regime that makes him look like Hitler, whatever. Point was... Do you know, maybe you already knew this story, do you know how he ended up becoming Jewish? I know that it was not in his initial characterization, but I don't remember how it came about. See, no one knew. So I just, so I'd interviewed Chris Claremont a bunch of times. Chris Claremont was the most, the pivotal writer of the X-Men characters. He did not create Mm -hmm. them, although he didn't create them. He wrote them from, I believe it was 1975 to 80, no, to 92. 
92, 91. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, I, I may be off by a year on each side of that, but he wrote it for a very long time. Basically, everything you conceive of as the X-Men he came up with, even though he did not come up with the original characters, he revamped everything along with his collaborators. I shouldn't give him sole credit, but Claremont was the through line. He was the only one who was there that entire time. And that's a really long run in comics. Very rarely does that happen, Mm -hmm. especially at like a superhero publisher. That does not happen very often. So it's a pivotal thing. And Claremont is Jewish. Did -hmm. you know that? I did know that. I did not know that when I started reporting that article. So call me dumb. But he goes by, (laughs) you know, he goes by Chris Claremont. He never really talks about it. Like it's not a a core part of his spiel. You know, he's he's Jewish on his mother's side. His father was was not Jewish. And his mother was very much from sort of the left wing kind of, you know, largely assimilated, but still sort of proud of being Jewish kind of world. I think she was Polish Jewish. He went and lived on a kibbutz in the 70s, before he went to uh, write for Marvel, he was on the kibbutz for a while, and he's watching movie night with the other folks in the kibbutz, and it was Judgment at Nuremberg. He's watching, and all of these really tough socialist bastards who were like the people who were still doing the kibbutz in the 70s, which was not a lot of people, like these were the real diehards. Mm -hmm. You know, these old timers, they're watching, and they watch Judgment at Nuremberg, and they're just completely transformed into jelly. Like they're, they're, they're just raw nerves all of a sudden. They're just mm-hmm. weeping and, and completely overtaken. Claremont just never forgot it. And then later, years later, he's writing the X-Men. You know, he was trying to come up with a backstory for Magneto, who had been introduced without a backstory. And he'd like filled in parts of it, but he wanted to like get to a real, you know, meaty nut thing. And he did the math. And he was like, well, if he is, <laughs> this was back when comics, you could still kind of, think, well, maybe the the actual amount of time has elapsed or something roughly. Whereas like now we're so trapped in the past where like Magneto is still around and he's still ostensibly a Holocaust survivor, even though that doesn't make any sense temporally anymore. Mm -hmm. Anyway, he, he was coming up with the background stuff. He did the math and he was like, he would have been this age in Europe in, you know, middle Europa at such and such a date. And that meant he would have lived through World War II. He would have been a boy. He would have been not a man. He wouldn't have served, but he would have been a a young man under the age of conscription. And he just thought it clicked. He was like, he remembered that day on the kibbutz. And he was like, this is what I should do is he should be Jewish. We should not talk about Magneto too much because I can talk about him all day. But um, that actually sort of gets to this piece that you're bringing about Claremont sort of gets to one of the things that I think makes comics as a medium not even specifically the X-Men, we'll get even more into that, but comics as a medium, incredibly Talmudic, is that it's necessarily like a collaborative medium with multiple authors over time where people cede authorial control. So in Talmud, you know, we have generations upon generations way longer than we've had comics, you know, hundreds of years of different people sort of layering on and reinterpreting stories Mm -hmm. after each other. And in comics, that exact same kind of thing happens where you know someone starts a story with magneto right where he's just this villainous character and then claremont comes along later and shamelessly takes editorial control of that character and that's just like a constant process that's always going on in comics that i think makes them very similar to talmud and i'm not sure you know i think a lot about how those similarities came about because when you start to think about comics and talmud together it sort of becomes like I don't know, almost suspicious how similar they are. I know. No, you're right. It's suspicious because you start going, am I seeing patterns that are not actually there? You know, like, mm-hmm. am I making this up? At least that's what happens to me. Right. When I start thinking about how much overlap there is, 
between the Marvel universe and the Jewish universe in terms of narrative overlap and contradiction and supplement and continuity and transformation and all those things. I start thinking about that and I see all of these crazy overlaps and I'm like, am I just looking for this and seeing it? Like it feels too good to be true, you know? Mm-hmm. But but I think it really is there. I think we're being neurotic, which is our prerogative as Jews. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think there really is a lot of overlap there. And perhaps, you know, I get very nervous about overstating Jewish textural and scriptural impact on comics. Because although comics was a very Jewish industry when it started out, it was not necessarily a practicing Jewish industry. Mm -hmm. But maybe there's something, perhaps, there's something built in in the way Jews think, or at least this, you know, Ashkenazis, I don't, I don't know. Maybe there's something there, but there's, it's, I don't want to overstate it. That said, there are these huge similarities. Maybe it's coming from some primal well that's beyond Judaism. And it's just deeper than that. Both Judaism and comics, superhero comics have drawn from some common well within the human psyche where we just want to see these stories that have core sort of origins, and then you build up mythology around them and the mythology around the mythology and commentary on the mythology mm-hmm. and interpretation of the commentary and, you know, art about the interpretation. Like it just becomes in both comics, superhero comics, and in, you know, Jewish literature, it becomes this gigantic web where you can go from any one work to 80 other works. And it can become incredibly intimidating. It is incredibly intimidating. And the Talmud is exhibit A. Right. And I think also X-Men is exhibit A on the other side, because for those of you who don't know, X-Men is sort of notoriously hard to get into. Yes. Because there's notoriously few jumping on points. You know, sagas are always bleeding into each other. Characters are dying and coming back. And it's like, at some point, you just have to jump into the stream. You just jump in and say, I'm not going to understand this. And I'm going to see what I can glean from it. Right. You're not obligated to complete the X-Men. Yeah. Neither are you free to from from it. it. I think to get even more granular about the connections, something that both Judaism and Talmud do that X-Men shares in common is they tell ethical fables using sort of super characters. Yeah, supernatural. Oh, yeah. A lot of supernatural acts. Yeah. We have this in the Bible somewhat, but I think in a certain sense, it becomes even more proclaimed because in Talmud, not only do we have sort of explicitly supernatural characters like rabbis with supernatural powers, yeah, but we also have just like, oh, this is how such and such did his Passover Seder. You know, like we yeah. we get down to the nitty gritty ethics of it. And X-Men, much more conspicuously than other superhero books, I think, is very focused on exploring ethical use of power. Yeah. At its best, it certainly is. I, yeah, I, don't know I mean, of course, there's some parts of the X-Men that suck. Oh, so, God. Such as the comic we're about to talk about. Just like there's some parts of the Talmud that suck. Yeah, yeah, well, true. Yes, it's very true. You pluck what works. Yeah, we've talked a little bit about why we wanted to talk about this. Should we even say what the, should we say that the, X, the basic concept, the X-Men are a bunch of mutants? Yes, the X-Men are the mutants. Basically, in the universe of the X-Men, there is a certain subset of the population that has a gene called the X-Gene that causes them to develop mutations, which can be superpowers or can just be aesthetic mutations. 
all kinds of different stuff. Or curses and burdens. Exactly. That's been interpreted and reinterpreted to death over the years. And part of the important thing that makes X-Men different than, for instance, you know, the Avengers, who they exist in the same universe mm-hmm. as, is that the fear of the X-Gene, which manifests around puberty, is sort of what distinguishes them from other super people. The mutants of the X-Men universe have become, over time, sort of a embodiment of the Great Replacement theory, which is this yeah. white supremacist fear that essentially white people are going to be replaced by Jews in a Jewish scheme and, and by people of color, and basically that white people are going to be dethroned. So right. X-Men represent that same fear in that normal humans, flat scans in the mm. in, in universe, are persistently afraid of mutants sort of replacing normal right. humanity. And that your you know, your son, your daughter, anyone could be a mutant, just like anyone could be gay. Now of course this is where the, the metaphor gets way overdone because the yes. thing is in the world of the X-Men and Marvel, like mutants are a lot of them living weapons that mm-hmm. should be regulated or studied or whatever it's it works as a metaphor but it only goes so far i would i i warn people about letting too much of it because then it turns into like you know you're talking you're you're the cop talking about how the black guy that he shot had superhuman strength you know right, like you're right. you're all of a sudden saying like well the, the bad people who were born different they're they're too powerful like literally mm-hmm. they're physically powerful they could de- or they're mentally powerful whatever and i have to defend myself as an ordinary human that's the place where the comic kind of falls apart as a metaphor a direct metaphor mm-hmm. but certainly if you're looking at specific stories. That's that's how it works. It's not the overall metaphor, and I think people often lose that. It's in the context of the way these characters are used at their best. Mm-hmm. The individual stories convey themes that have to do with the challenges that minority populations and marginalized populations face. But it has to be done in an expert way by somebody who knows what they're doing and knows how to talk about that stuff, you know, because it can get so ham-fisted and unhelpful, you know? Right, absolutely. But before we get too bogged down in the premise, which we could also debate for a whole episode all its own, we'll have to start a spinoff X-Men podcast to discuss all of this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry about that. It's okay. Before this show, I sort of asked you to pick some X-Men to talk about, and you picked this mini-series, which is called The Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, which ran in 1994. It's a four-issue mini-series. Tell the world, tell the listeners a little bit about this mini-series and why you picked it. Very briefly, because if you try to explain the whole thing, we'll be here until you know, the X-Men are finally canceled in the end of the world. Um, But there are these two characters who've been around since the very beginning of the X-Men, Jean Grey, who goes by Phoenix for reasons that are not worth getting into right now, and Scott Summers, who is Cyclops. Jean Grey has mind powers, and Scott has the ability to shoot lasers from his eyes. Much like Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, for those of you who listen to our Rashbi episodes. There you go. Exactly. So basically, they have a very long, complicated romance, and she died and came back, and, you know, later he died and came back, and, mm-hmm. you know, there was a clone, sort of, that scott of gene that scott got pregnant it it gets it don't even get me started on madeline Pryor. although it's looking like that bitch is gonna come back which i love i know she was done dirty but but it's but the point is like it gets so complicated when you get granular about it but basically scott and madeline Pryor, who was this 
you know, replication of Jean who like turned evil. Demon queen. Demon queen. Yes. Um, they had a baby and the baby gets sent to the future. And the story that we're reading, the adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix takes place when Jean and Scott have just, well, Scott, Jean's back from the dead. It's much later. They haven't seen the baby, but they did meet this guy named Cable and Cable, I don't know why, this is too complicated. I'm trying to do a brief. I know that you feel that it's too complicated, but I was just thinking as you were telling this story, it feels like exactly when we talk about Talmud on this show, because we have to be like, okay, so Rashbi was this really important guy, right, and right. he was in a cave for reasons, and he had sent his wife away for other reasons, and then he came out and had laser vision. We don't know, we don't why. know why. So this is actually like a perfect illustration of the whole principle, okay. right? Oh, great. Okay, good. I'm I'm glad I can help. But the the, the the narrative of this story is Scott and Jean get married. That happens in a previous comic. But Scott mm-hmm. and Jean get married. And while they're on their honeymoon, all of a sudden, they get transported forward 2,000 years in time where they've been summoned by another sort of alternate universe or at least future timeline mm-hmm. child of theirs named Rachel. They're in the future, 2,000 years in the future. And they have to help raise, or just raise, they raise Nathan, who is there, because when he was sent into the future, he's sent to this place 2,000 years in the future, uh, where Rachel, the other child from a different timeline, kind of, uh, is now very old and is had been taking care of him. And now, you know, they get sent forward in time because she needed to bring them to take care of the child because she was about to die. Right. Basically, the TLDR version is... I'm trying to do a T... I can't figure it out. What's the TLDR? Tell me. Two important characters. Oh, great. Okay, great. The, we're going to go that vague. Sent great. forward into the future yes. to hang out with their kids who have also been sent into the future ahead of them. Great. And are, <laughs> and confusingly, one of the kids is much older than them and the other is much yes. younger than them. Mm-hmm. There's lots of timey-wimey stuff. Yep, a lot of timey-wimey stuff. So here's the thing. The reason I keep stopping myself is I don't give a shit about the plot or even really mm-hmm. the background of the characters when it comes to this story. The story is very poorly written. I will just say that. Like, it's, <laughs> it's an astoundingly bad piece of writing. That mm-hmm. said, and this is the kind of thing you end up saying about comics if you read a lot of superhero comics, you go like, well, obviously the writing or like obviously the art or obviously the whatever is terrible in this and execrable and I would never recommend it to anyone. But there were some interesting ideas or like, but the art was interesting, <laughs> you know, and that's how I feel. And the art is interesting in this one. Well, that's the thing. So Gene Ha, this is why I kind of wish I could just like do a get like an artist's edition of this with no dialogue and mm-hmm. just look at the gorgeous visions of this weird future, this weird like heavy metal album or prog rock album, probably more like a cover. Yeah, the whole thing looks like a freaking tool album. It's so cool. At least it was one. I mean, I, it was really cool for me when I was a child. And now looking back on it, it's so strange that I can't help but love it. Like they don't draw stuff like that all that often in superhero comics. I mean, artists can mm-hmm. be very talented, but like to create something that weird, I mean, the main thing that's fascinating about it in a visual aesthetic is that like, and this will be important later for what we're talking about, the technology 
And the idea of technology and, you know, matter, flesh and earth and whatever, all of that kind of being merged, you know, one of the characters, a lot of the characters, but one of the main characters, the kid has this thing called the techno organic virus, where he's Mm -hmm. been infected with this virus that causes his body, parts of it to turn into kind of like wild machinery that's like constantly Mm -hmm. shifting and that's like eating away at his body. And it requires him to use his psychic powers to fight it off and keep it from killing him. But it's like constantly sort of shifting on him. And and Gene Ha, the artist, the penciler, took that idea, which was already in the comics, and sort of applied it to this whole world of the future. Where like, mm-hmm. what if the technology was alive and the living things were dead, you know? Or not dead, but like they – like it's, uh, it's hard to describe. It's very – it's kind of this Dune-type thing – not as far flung in the future as Dune, but similarly, like we've reverted kind of back to a feudal state. Right. It's it has a very big Dune energy to it. Huge Dune energy. Big Dune energy. A BDE, if you will. I think one of the things that's great about the art for me, before we get more into the content question, is in a way that's quite rare in comics. Most of the characters are drawn like people. So for those of you who don't know, in superhero comics, every character is just drawn in like this incredibly sexy, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. just like compl- inhuman, inhuman anatomy. Yeah is applied to every character and their faces are just like perfectly chiseled in oh, every way. Oh God, and the, and the TNA, man, it's always primo, you know? It's always about the TNA. I mean, Scott has more T than Gene in this he one. Does. I know, he's got the nice pegs. But they're drawn in in a way that looks like an actual human that you could meet. Yeah. I mean, still an incredibly buff human, but they at least have normal human faces, which already sets it apart from other comics. Oh, yeah, including the fact that I, I was struck by reading it now, uh, the degree to which he really leans into making sure it has a very diverse cast. I really admire right. it. I mean, it's this it's this vision of the future where, like, racial divisions don't matter anymore. All that matters Mm. is whether you're homo superior or homo inferior, you know, homo sapiens rather, you know, whether you're a mutant or not. So it's really interesting Mm -hmm. because you have these really multi-ethnic societies, which implies that ethnicity, that race no longer matter. They've been utterly replaced by this other thing. So it's this weird kind of utopian vision. I mean, that's the other thing was it was very comforting on some level to read now because I was like, okay, cool. Well, the climate crisis didn't happen. Like it turns out right. that like- Well, well it, the whole world seems to be a desert. So it seems like it kind of did. Well, no, there's, it's not all a desert. You have, you have like, they're walking along like fields and such, you know. So we got all into the art and stuff. You suggested this series to me to read, which first of all, I have to tell you, it was incredibly difficult. Oh, I could I, not I, give a, a fuck about a single character. No, no, this. the characters are compl- terribly written. Yeah. So why did you choose this for our Talmud? podcast why i choose to inflict this on you yes why did you make me read about cable the character i care about the least in the entire x universe well because he was the character i cared about the most so here's the thing there are two angles to talk about for why this comic i felt was relevant to talk about here there's the talmud angle and there's the queer angle now i'm sure once i start talking about one we'll figure out how they link up But I'm trying to debate which one I should talk about first. Let's start with the queer one. Because what I love about Cable is... Which, to clarify to listeners, Cable is one of the babies in this story that was sent (laughs) to the future. He's Nathan. It goes by Nathan here. He goes by Nathan. We're just going to keep calling him Cable for consistency's sake. He's like a teenage boy. He's like 10 years of his life from like baby to teenager, you know? Mm -hmm. Something like that. Whatever. There's a scene near the end that just 
I, I has never left my mind. Cable is having, has to like summon all of his powers to like recover himself from the land of the dead. He's like about to die mm-hmm. or something. Right. Who cares? The, the specifics of that don't matter. He has this conversation in his head with Rachel, the other kid who is his sister, other baby who has been sent to the future, other baby who is now very old and dying. Um, mm-hmm. And she gives him some advice on, tells him like his, the nature of who he is and his potential. And she says, look, if you didn't have this techno organic virus, you would be the most powerful mutant, the most powerful mind, at least psychic mutant in the world. Like you could Mm -hmm. blink out suns with barely a thought. Unfortunately, you have this thing on you and it's Mm -hmm. never going away. And uh, follow me here. Um, just, just bear with me. You have this thing I'm, on you. I'm bearing. It's a clamp that is going to keep you from being able to do all that. But that sort of them's the breaks, and you have to fight it with all of your your brain. You're gonna have this war every day with yourself to keep that at bay. Mm-hmm. That made a huge impression on me. I was reading this comic when I was like 12 or something, 12, 13. I was like so neurotic. I was so depressed and anxious all of the time and like really hated myself for no mm-hmm. no real substantive reason. And I really, for most of my life, really subscribed to that school of thought where I was like, I suck and I'm not meeting my potential and I'm just going to have to like fight this depression or fight this closetedness. I have to fight. I have to repress this thing in order Mm -hmm. to even just stay alive. And if I let go at any moment, it's going to consume me and it's going to destroy Mm -hmm. me, you know? Mm -hmm. And looking back on it, it feels a lot like the mentality I had that kept me closeted, kept me from being who I was, from like going towards the things I love as opposed to being motivated by the things I'm afraid of and the things that are, not to sound too woo-woo, but you know, it, it was really interesting to think about this. I recommended it to you initially thinking I was going to talk about that po- that that philosophy sort of positively in some way because – I don't know, it's still been rattling around in my head as something I identified with. But then upon rereading it, I was like, that's how I used to think. And then mm-hmm. I started bottoming, and I feel like I've completely <laughs> changed my whole approach, you know? Right, now you can extinguish suns with a single thought. Well, yeah, I mean, it's... <laughs> okay, that's not exactly what I meant. Respect. <laughs> power bottoms, super power bottoms. Yeah, exactly. exactly. But, but No, but seriously, on some level, it's like... That experience, I, I, you know, I came out when I was like, I just turned 31 or it was like a couple of days before my 31st birthday, something like that. Very late in 30 into 31 without getting into my whole queer life story. I'd like done a lot of stuff with guys or at least with dicks. And mm-hmm. I like then just sort of had this breakthrough moment where I was like, oh, all that stuff counts. And like, right. not only does it count, more importantly, I'd been spending most of my life or my basically my entire life since I'd hit puberty, really trying to not I'm bi. I should have maybe maybe this mm-hmm. is like I should have spoiled the ending earlier, but I'm I, I identify as bisexual for whatever that means. I mean, it's such a finding terms for any of these things is becoming very passe mm-hmm. anyway. We're just supposed to be who we are or something. I don't know. But I really just thought the part of me that was attracted to men because I thought it would be more trouble than it was worth. I wasn't bigoted. It wasn't about me being, I mean, I'm sure there was internalized biphobia to a certain extent, but like that wasn't the main thing that was on my mind. It was more, I had just 
since I was a kid gone, like, you know what? I get bullied enough for being femme. I don't need Mm -hmm. to also like be gay, you know? And what's interesting is once I stopped having that kind of philosophy that I really, in a lot of ways, gleaned you know, from my world, but also that that scene really did crystallize it for me for a long time. I was like, not necessarily thinking about it in terms of sexuality. I wasn't as repre- I wasn't as consciously repressed about my sexuality mm-hmm. as I was about some other things. But it was this overall feeling of just I have to fight myself. I have to fight this like poison in me that is also kind of part of me in order to just be a good like be a functioning human being. So this is getting at part of what I think the important commonality is here and sort of the benefit, I think, of both X-Men, like the positive social value of X-Men and of Mm. Talmud to me, is that they are both sort of imparting their ethical tales to us. And, you know, we learn those ideas and they sort of continue to live on in us and they shape us in ways that we can't necessarily understand consciously at the time. And that, whether in spirituality or popular culture, is a dangerous tool. But at its best, you know, most wonderful incarnation, those stories, just like this one, it seems like did for you, give us tools to understand and interpret ourselves in the world in a way that we could have never done without them. Totally. And it probably, it was a useful coping strategy is my guess. You Mm -hmm. know, I think that was a message I needed to hear then because the positive end of that was not the repression. The positive end, because that was, I was usually just thinking about the positive end. Only when I Mm reread did I see the kind of programming that was in there. The positive read was always, that was a scene that suggested to me that it wasn't my fault. That like the reason I wasn't perfect was not my fault. Not that I was just lazy, you know, not that I was just Mm -hmm. dumb or bad, but that like there was, there was something beyond my control that was there and I needed to sort of keep it at bay in order to be functional. And whatever the, that was, the, the thing that I was fighting was kind of vague to me, but it was like, maybe it's depression, maybe it's mental illness, maybe it was all of these things. But that mindset was just kind of wrapped up in that. I was thinking about the positives, but I was sort of taking in the negatives and adopting them as well. I, I hope this is making some sense. No, it's it's making sense to me. I To get back to this piece about how these stories affect us. Like, I don't think we go to X-Men and we're like, I'm going to search my trove of X-Men for an ethical (laughs) tale that will help me in this situation. You'd be surprised, but yeah. We do do that in Talmud. And I think that's sort of a, a misstep in the way we understand it. In my best moments, understand Talmud in a similar way to how I understand my comics reading, which is like, I just take it in because I Mm. love it. And like 10 years later, I discover, you know, the gold nuggets like this. Totally. Like there's a there's a line of Talmud. I think it's from early part of Brachot, basically, which says the gate of tears is always open. Right. And that is a sort of classic Talmudic teaching that uh, when I read it, I was like, OK, well, the gate of tears is always open. Like put it on a fucking Hallmark card. Like it didn't hit me. But there have been other moments of my life where it meant a lot to me to sort of understand suffering as a universal condition and to understand that for me one thing that god means basically is that there is something someone some gate out there that is like witnessing my suffering you yeah, know no you matter go. how alone it feels and that experience of that didn't come to me for a long time and i think 
X-Men was very similar. Like I was obsessed, obsessed with X-Men from a very young age. I mean, I th- I think I started with the, the animated series and I was a very queer little baby. Um, you know, <laughs> I got beat up a lot at school, yeah, but, yeah. you know, like all throughout. Yeah. And at the time I wasn't like consciously thinking like, oh, X-Men is teaching me that like my difference can be a superpower. I was just like, I... I am fabulous. I am the Phoenix, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I have a Phoenix t-shirt with a very deep V. Oh my God. Love it. And then now as an adult, I look back and I'm, and I see, you know, a hundred percent that that the, you know, the fierce and fabulous women of the X-Men were yeah. like teaching me something about difference and about trauma. Totally. That, that lesson would not land for me for years later. And that to me is what the process of studying Talmud is sort of like in its best form is we just take in so much information, mm-hmm. some of which does have a practical surface use, you know, like how big does my sukkah need to be, blah, blah, blah. But also it's just sort of, it goes in to your mind and ferments and maybe in a couple years, maybe in a couple of months, you know, some of those nuggets come out. Hopefully it's sort of a, a mysterious and, and unintelligible process, but to me, like crucially important. Oh, yeah. And the comics are similar to that. I wish I had more time to go back and do what you're talking about, to kind of go back and revisit the classics Mm -hmm. to solve all of my problems. Because whenever I go back and reread this stuff, I find new things, such as this conversation we're having about this comic. I didn't realize any of that until I reread it. And it is true also in scripture. You're right. It's funny. I wonder if maybe someday I'll look back at The Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, the writing of it at least, and think... um, you know, the way you were thinking about the Gate of Tears and how initially it felt like a live, laugh, love sort of, you know, magnet. And like a lot of this writing seems really hackneyed to me. Well, the Mm -hmm. writing in the frickin' sitter used to read as very hackneyed to me and boring and repetitive. Once you learn how to read the stuff, at least in Jewish texts, once you learn how to really read it, all of a sudden it's a totally different ball game. Um, and you can really, I don't know that that'll ever happen to me with, with the adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, but, but who knows <laughs> the other Talmudic line was, and you made this point when I first suggested it to you, it's not unlike in some ways, or at least has elements of the story about uh, Moshe Rabbeinu getting sent ahead in time to go, mm-hmm. to go be in the classroom of Rabbi Akiva. You probably know the story even better than I do. Do you want to recount it? I'll just give a quick quick and dirty little summary. Basically, there is a piece of Talmud where Moses is hanging out with God, like you do, and uh, <laughs> is basically like, let me see like what's up with the future. What is the future of the Torah? How yeah. is this all going to work out? And God takes Moses, takes Moses, gives Moses a vision into the future of Rabbi Akiva's classroom. And Rabbi Akiva is teaching something which Rabbi Akiva says is from Moses at Sinai. And Moses is like, I don't know. I don't even know what, what you're talking about. WTF right? this yeah. is. And that is the main upshot of the story is that it's... But that it's good. It's like the conclusion is this is a good thing. It's positive. That there has been this evolution, you know, and Mm -hmm. that's both, you know, like we were saying, part of the meta story of like the evolution of how the story gets so convoluted, but beautiful. Mm -hmm. But it's also within the story, part of something that I really liked, which was this idea that there was going to be continuity. That like Mm -hmm. these characters and therefore by extension, like me and my people or, you know, whatever, that things can 
extend that far into the future. For some reason, I mean, I read it when I was very young. It was more vivid to me as a far distant future than anything I'd read prior to that. Mainly the art. Like the art really transported me into this other world. And Mm -hmm. the basic theme or prompt of it, like I wasn't paying attention to the dialogue really. I just was like going with the basic prompt. And it's something similar to what you're talking about with the story about Moshe Rabbeinu, where Moses is like, similarly to Scott and Jean, who get shunted forward 2,000 years, they're initially like, what is this world? Where are we? And then, it, and who's this person who brought us here? And then it's like, well, it's Rachel, you know, this is your daughter. And she looks unrecognizable because she lived so long and like kept people safe and mm-hmm. was the future incarnation of the X-Men 2,000 years in the future. Right. And like, this is a good thing that mm-hmm. like- you're with this person who has changed so much. You're with this story that has changed so much. You're with this this institution, whatever, this people, this family, these things that have somehow persisted. And that's what I think about all the time these days because, I mean, I was thinking about the end of the world going back before it was cool. Right. Um, but, you know, now that's what I think about all the time. You know, we talk about Jewish continuity like it's just an intermarriage problem as opposed to a climate change problem. You know, it's crazy. But anyway, the point is when it comes to that story, it's about how change is beautiful when handled with grace and justice and you know, Tzedek, Tzedek, Tirdof, et cetera, whatever. Right. I think that's one of the most powerful gifts I get from Judaism is sort of contextualizing my life in a multi-millennia project. Yes, yes. I could see, I could tell we were going to be friends. This is like exactly <laughs> how I think. This is my whole deal. To get onto something I've been thinking about while we've been having this conversation about you know, we talked about we, we, you know, we're all seeing these patterns and it's like, yeah. why is it so Jewish? Yeah, is it because yeah, of the yeah, people? Yeah. I think the Talmud and Judaism in general are sort of attempting to touch something essential about reality, right? Whether you mm-hmm. want to call that God or whatever, they're trying to access that in some way and deliver it to us. To me, I think the X-Men in its best moments, in its most beautiful moments, has a similar project in that it is trying to convey some essential truth about life to us through a supernatural story. That, to me, is the explanation for the similarities, is that because that universal truth, IMHO, is fundamentally the same, the mediums through which it's expressed are going to have similarities. Yeah. What do you think that lesson about life is for the X-Men. I'm trying to figure out what the irreducible... Oh, I don't think... uh, When I say irreducible truth, you know, I don't think it has an end of episode, like, don't steal. I know, I know. But, like, I was wondering if you thought of something more specific than that. That's what I'm saying. It's, like, it's, to me, as someone who believes in God, right, it Mm -hmm. is, like, the irreducible universal truth that can't be expressed in words, right? That's the source Totally get that. For me, all ethics and everything, and... Every issue of X-Men and every page of Talmud are both human attempts to convey different elements of that Mm. source. And some of them succeed and some of them really super fucking fail. They sure do. The big thing for me that's irreducible about Jewishness is the story. The story is the thing that unites every Jew, whether you're a convert, you're Sephardi, Ashkenaz, Bukharian whether it's a thousand years ago or a thousand years before that, whatever, you identify with and I think have a responsibility to this larger narrative of something called Jews or Mm -hmm. children of Israel or whatever lineage you want to give it. 
this is something that you, as uh, a Jew, have a responsibility to try and make into a good story with a good ending. That's what I keep coming back to is as the more important imperative. Like the, the important imperative that can actually feel substantive because God is ineffable. Whatever whatever we're talking about is something you can't grab onto by, by definition. Whereas a story, although you can never fully grasp a story, you know, you especially something that's being created like, like the story of the Jews, it's something more for me specific to Jewishness and practical. I feel like people respond when you talk about it that way, because whatever your feelings are on God, if you're a Jew and you call yourself that and you want to be that, and I guess in some cases, even if you don't want to be that, you're a part of that story. And I think a lot of what motivates me these days is thinking about like, well, how can I be a credit to the Jewish story? Mm-hmm. And I feel like those are hard things to figure out, but those are where kind of I derive a lot of my ethics as opposed to the idea of there being like a cosmic scorekeeper. For me, it's much more like, how can I learn from what I know about telling stories and use that knowledge to tell and make a better story in real life? You know what I mean? I don't know if that made any sense. To paraphrase a great X-Men quote, the whole world is watching. The whole of history is watching. We must be nothing less than utterly fabulous. That's exactly right. Well, Abe, it feels as if it's only been a moment, and yet it's been a full hour. We love you. I'm sure the listeners are going to love you. (laughs) Do you have anything you want to plug before I do our sign-off? Yeah, buy my book. Buy my book, y'all. Go to abrahamreisman.com, and the name of the book is... True Believer, The Rise and Fall of Stan Lee. And it's Abraham Reisman, R-I-E. But if you misspell it with the E-I, I have that URL registered as well, and it <laughs> redirects. But it's abrahamreisman.com. Stellar. Wow. Well, thank you for coming on the show. We will see you all very soon. Shavuot Tov. <laughs>